Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to day two of the British Science Fiction Association Best Short Story 2007. Today is going to be Lightning Out by Ken McLeod. Yesterday was Chaz Brenchley, and wait and see what is coming up tomorrow. Narration comes today thanks to Diane Severson. Thank you, Diane, for this. Lighting Out was first published in the anthology Dislocations, part of the New Compress. Links again on the site for Dislocations and New Compress. They've got some cracking writers in that series, so please pop over and have a look there. Don't forget to pop over to the site and leave comments on the forum about this actual story. And once we get to day five, then that will be fine. And there'll be a poll on there so you can vote which one you think actually will be the best story for 2007. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show. It's free. comes out normally twice a week. Once on a Wednesday with the audio, Oral Delights. And once on a weekend with me going in-depth into certain writers. So, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents Ken McLeod, Lightning Out. Mother had got into the walls again. Constance McGottley kept an eye on her while scrabbling at the back of her desk drawer for the Norton. Her fingers closed around the grip and the trigger. She withdrew the piece slowly, nudging the drawer farther open with the heel of her hand. Then she whipped out the bell-muzzled device and leveled it at the face that had sketched itself in ripples in the paint of her study. 
Any last words, Mom? she asked. Constance lip-read frantic mouthings. Oh, sorry, she said. She snapped her fingers a couple of times to turn the sound up. What? Don't be so hasty, her mother said. I have a business proposition. Again? Constance thumbed the antivirus to Max. No, really. This time it's legit. I've heard that one before, too. You have? A furrow appeared in the paint above the outlined eyes. I don't seem to have the memory. You wouldn't, said Constance. You're a cunning sod when you're all there. Where are you, by the way? Jupiter orbit, I think, said her mother. I'm sorry, I can't be more specific. Oh, come on, Constance said, stung. I wouldn't try to get at you, even if I could. I didn't mean it that way, said her mother. I really don't know where the rest of me is, but I do know it's not because I expect you to murder me, okay? Okay, said Constance, kicking herself for giving her mother that tiny moral victory. So what's the deal? It's in the inner station, said her mother. It's very simple. The stuff people on the way out take with them is mostly of very little use when they get there. The stuff people on the way in arrive with is usually of very little use here. Each side would be better off the other side's stuff. You see the possibilities? Oh, sure, said Constance. And you're telling me nobody else has in all this time? Of course they have, said her mother. There's a whole bazaar out there of swaps and marts and so forth. The point is that nobody is doing it properly to get the best value for the goods. Some of the stuff coming down really is worth something here, and all too often it just goes back up the tube again. Wait a minute. Constance tried to recall her last economics course. Maybe it's not worthwhile for anybody to try. You're absolutely right, said her mother. For most business models it isn't, but for a very young person with very low costs and with instant access, well, light-speed access, to a very old person, someone with centuries of experience, there's money to be made hand over fist. What's in it for you? Apart from helping my daughter find her feet? Her mother looked hurt. Well, there's always the chance of something really big coming down the tube. Usable tech, you know? We'd have first dibs on it, and a research and marketing apparatus already in place. Constance thought about it. The old woman was undoubtedly up to something, but going to the inner station sounded exciting. The opportunity seemed real, and what did she have to lose? All right, she said. Talk to my agent. She fingered a card from her pocket with her free hand and downloaded her mother from the wall. You in? she asked. Yes. "'came a voice from the card. "'The image on the wall gave a convincing rendition of a nod "'and closed its eyes. "'Goodbye, Mom,' said Constance, "'and squeezed the trigger. "'She stood there for a while, "'staring at the now smooth paint "'after the brute force of the electromagnetic pulse "'and the more subtle ferocity of the antivirus routines "'transmitted immediately after it had done their work. "'As always, on these occasions,' She wondered what she had really done. Of course, it hadn't killed her mother. Her mother, allegedly in Jupiter orbit, was very much alive. 
Even the partial copy of her mother's brain patterns that had infiltrated the intelligent paint was itself, no doubt this very second, sitting down for a coffee and a chat with the artificial intelligence agent in the virtual spaces of Constance's business card. At least a copy of it was. But the copy that had been in the walls was gone, she hoped. And it had been an intelligent, self-aware being, a person as real as herself, The copy had expected nothing but a brief existence, but if it had been transferred to some other hardware, a robot or a blank brain in a cloned body, it could have had a long one. It could have wandered off and lived a full and interesting life. On the other hand, if all copies and partials were left in existence and helped to independence, the whole solar system would soon be overrun with them. Such things had happened now and again over the centuries— Habitats, planets, sometimes entire systems transformed themselves into high-density information economies, which accelerated away from the rest of civilization as more and more of the minds within them were minds thinking a million times faster than a human brain. So far, they had always exhausted themselves within five years or so. It was known as a fast burn. Preventing this was generally considered a good idea, and that meant deleting copies— Constance knew that the ethics of the situation had all been worked out by philosophers much wiser than she was, and agreed, indeed, by copies of philosophers, just to be sure, but it still troubled her sometimes. She dismissed the pointless worry, put the Norton back in the desk, and walked out the door. She needed fresh air. Her apartment opened near the middle of the balcony, which stretched hundreds of meters to the left and right. Constance stepped two paces to the rail, stood between plant boxes and leaned over. Below her, other balconies sloped away in stepped tiers. In the downward distance, their planters and window boxes merged in her view like the side of a green hill, and themselves merged with the rougher and shallower incline of vine terraces. Olive groves interspersed with hundred-meter cypresses spread from the foot of the slope across the circular plain beneath her. Surrounded by its halo of habitats, A three-quarters full earth hung white and glaring in the dark blue of the sky seen through the air and the crater roof. Somewhere under the planet's unbroken cloud cover, huddled in fusion-warmed caves and domes on the ice, small groups of people worked and studied, the brave scientists of the re-terraforming project. Constance had sometimes daydreamed of joining them, but she had a more exciting destination now. Weight began to pull as the shuttle decelerated. Constance settled back in her couch and slipped her wraparounds down from her brow to cover her eyes. The default view, for her as for all passengers, was of the view ahead, over the rear of the ship. A hundred kilometers in diameter, the inner station was so vast that even the shuttle's exhaust gases barely distorted the view. The station itself was dwarfed by the surrounding structures— the great spinning webs of the microwave receptors collecting energy beamed from the solar power stations in Mercury orbit, and the five short tubes, each millions of kilometers long and visible as hairline fractures across the sky. To and from their inner ends, needle-shaped craft darted, ferrying incoming or outgoing passengers for the long tubes out in the Oort cloud, far beyond the orbit of Pluto. So far, indeed, that this initial or final hop was for the passengers subjectively longer than the near-light-speed journey between the stars. 
As the ship's attitude jets fired, the view swung, providing Constance with a glimpse of the green-gold haze of habitats that ringed the sun. The main jet cut in again, giving a surge of acceleration as the shuttle matched velocities with the rim of the inner station. With a final clunk and shudder, the ship docked. Constance felt for a moment that it was still under acceleration, as indeed it was, the acceleration of constant rotation, which she experienced as a downward centrifugal force of one Earth gravity. She stood up, holding the seat until she was sure of her balance, and tried not to let her feet drag as she trudged down the aisle to the exit door. In the weeks of travel from the moon, she'd kept the induction coils and the elastic resistance of her clothing at maximum to build up her bone and muscle mass, but she still felt heavy. It looked as if the other passengers felt the same. She climbed the steps in front of the airlock, waved her business card at the doorframe, and stepped out onto the concourse. Her first breath and glance surprised her. Coming from the ancient, almost rural backcountry of the moon, she'd expected the inner station to gleam within, just as it shone without. What she found herself standing in was no such slick and clean machine. The air smelled of sweat and cookery, and vibrated with a din of steps and speech. Centuries of detritus from millions of passengers had silted into crevices and corners and become ingrained in surfaces, defeating the ceaseless toil of swarms of tiny cleaning machines. Not dirty, but grubby and used. The concourse was about a thousand meters across, and lengthways extended far out of sight in a gentle upward slope in either direction. People and small vehicles moved among stands and shops like herds among trees on a savanna. About a fifth of the static features were, in fact, trees, part of the station's recycling system. The trees looked short, few of them over ten meters high. The ceiling, cluttered with light strips, sprinklers and air ducts, was only a couple of meters above the tallest of them. Don't panic, said her mother's voice in her earbead. There's plenty of air. Constance took a few slow, deep breaths. That's better, said her mother. I want to look outside. Please yourself. Constance made her way among hurrying or lingering people. It was a slow business. No matter which way she turned, somebody seemed to be going in the opposite direction. Many of them were exotics but she wasn't attuned to the subtle differences in face or stance to tell Cetians from Centaurans, Barnardites from Iridians. For those from farther out, paradoxically, the differences from the solar norm were less. The colonies around Lalande, 61 Signy, and the two opposite Rosses, 248 and 128, having been more recently established. Costume and covering were no help, Fashions in such superficial matters as clothing, skin color, hair, fur, and plumage varied from habitat to habitat and fluctuated from day to day right here in the solar system. She found the window. It wasn't a window. It was a ten meters long, three meters high screen, giving the view as seen from the station's hub. Because it was set in the side wall of the concourse, the illusion was good enough for the primitive part of the brain that felt relief to see it. The only person standing in front of it and looking out was a man about her own age, the youngest person she'd seen since she left the moon. Yellow fur grew from his scalp and tapered halfway down his back. 
Constance stood a couple of meters away from him and gazed out, feeling her breath become more even, her reflected face in the glass less anxious. The sun, dimmed a little by the screen's hardware, filled a lower corner of the view. The habitat haze spread diagonally across it, thinning toward the upper end. A couple of the inner planets, the Earth-Moon pair, white and green, and bright Venus, were visible as sparks in the glitter, like tiny gems in a scatter of gold dust. Did you know, the boy said after a while, that when the ancients looked at the sky they saw heaven? Yes, said Constance, confused. Well, I'm not sure. Don't the words mean the same? The boy shook his head, making the fur ripple. Sort of. What I mean is, they saw the place where they really thought God, or the gods, lived. Venus and Mars and Jupiter, and so on, really were gods, at first, and people could just see them. And then later, they thought it was a set of solid spheres revolving around them, and that God actually lived there. I mean, they could see heaven. And then Galileo came along and spoiled everything? The boy laughed. Well, not quite. It was a shock, all right. But afterwards, people could look up and see space, I suppose, the universe, nature. And what do we see now? The suburbs. Constance waved a hand. Habitats, power plants, factories. Yes, ourselves. He sounded disgusted. But don't you think it's magnificent? Oh, sure, magnificent. She jerked a thumb over her shoulder. We could see the stars from the other side. Scores of them fuzzy with habitats. Constance turned to face him. That was, um, an invitation. Oh, said the boy. Yes, let's. We have work to do, said the voice in Constance's ear. Constance fished the card out of her shirt pocket and slid it towards a pocket lined with metal mesh on her trouser thigh. Hey, protested her mother as she recognized what was about to happen. Wait a... The card slid into the Faraday pocket and the voice stopped. Privacy, said Constance. What? I'll tell you on the way across, she said. His name was Andy Larkin. He was from a habitat complex in what he called the wet zone, the narrow ring in which water on an Earth-type planet, though not at the moment Earth, would be liquid. This all seemed notional, but he assured her it made certain engineering problems easier. He'd been in the station for a year. Why? He shrugged, bored back home. Lots like me here. We get called hall bats. Because they flitted about the place, he explained. The deft way he led her through the crowds made it credible. His ambition was to take a long tube out. He didn't have much of a plan to realize it. The odd jobs he did sounded to Constance like a crude version of her mother's business plan. She told him so. He looked at her sidelong. You're still taking business advice from your mother's partial? I've only just started, she said. She didn't know why she felt embarrassed. She shrugged. I was raised by partials. Your mother was a mummy? And my dad a dummy, yes. They updated every night. At least, that's what they told me when I found out. What fun to be rich, said Andy. At least my parents were real. Real-time and full-time. 
No wonder you're insecure. Why do you think I'm insecure? He stopped, caught her hand and squeezed it. What do you feel? Constance felt shaken by what she felt. It was not because he was a boy. It was... He let go. See, he said. Do the analysis. Constance blinked, sighed, and hurried after him. They reached the far window. As she'd guessed, it showed the opposite view. As he'd predicted, it was still industrial. At least thirty of the visible stars had a green habitat haze around them. I want to see a sky with no people in it, Andy said. This seemed a strange wish. They argued about it for so long that they ended up in business together. Constance rented a cell in a run-down sector of the station. It had a bed, water, and power supply, a communications hub, and little else. Andy dragged in his general assembler, out of which he had been living for some time. It spun clothes and food out of molecules from the air and from any old rubbish that could be scrounged and stuffed in the hopper. Every day, Andy Larkin would wander off around the marts and swap meets, just as he'd been doing before. The difference now was that whenever he picked up anything interesting, Constance would show it to her mother's partial. Andy's finds amounted to about a tenth of the number Constance found in scans of the market, but they were almost always the most intriguing. Sometimes, of course, all they could obtain were recordings of objects on the business card. In these cases, they used the assembler to make samples to test themselves or demonstrate to the partial. Occasionally, the partial would consult with Constance's actual mother, wherever she was, several hundred million kilometers away, to judge by the light-speed communications lag, and deliver an opinion. Out of hundreds of objects they examined in their first fortnight, they selected a gene fix for hyperacute balance, an iridescent plumage dye, an immersion drama of the Wolf 359 dynastic implosion, a financial instrument for long-term capital management, a virtual reality game played by continuously updated partials, a molecular-level coded representation of the major art galleries of END4, a device of obscure purpose that tickled, a microgravity dance dress, a song from Leiden 789-6, a vegan cutlery set, The business, now trading as Larkin Associates, slammed the goods into the marketing networks as fast as they were chosen. The drama flopped, the song invited parodies, its hook line was a bad pun on hot zone power worker slang, the financial instrument crashed the exchanges of twenty habitats before it was nortoned, the dress went straight to vintage, the dye faded, the other stuff did well enough to put Constance's business card back in the black for the first time since leaving the moon. Did you know, said Andy, that the ancients would have had to pay the inventors? The ancients were mad, said Constance. They saw gods. And everything went well for a while. Constance came out of the game fifty-seven lives up, and with a delusion of competence in eleven-dimensional matrix algebra, to find that it was night in the sector. That she had frittered away ten hours. That she needed coffee. Andy was asleep. The assembler would be noisy. Constance slipped up her wraparounds and strolled out of the cell and walked 500 meters to a false morning and a stand where she could score a mug of freshly ground Mare Imbrian Black. 
She was still inhaling steam and waiting for the coffee to cool when she noticed a fraught woman heading her way, pacing the long ways deck and glancing from side to side. It was her mother, Julia Mukgatli, the real and original woman. Of that, Constance was sure, though she'd never seen her in the flesh before. Startled, she stared at the woman. Julia pinged her with her next glance, stopped, and hurried over. At a dozen steps' distance, she stood still and put a finger to her lips. Then she took a business card from inside her robe and, with exaggerated care, slid it into a Faraday pocket on the knee. She pointed at Constance and repeated the procedure as gesture. Constance complied, and Julia walked up. Not sure what to do, Constance shook hands. Her mother hauled her forward and put an arm around her shoulder. They both stepped back and looked at each other with awkwardness and doubt. How did you get here? Constance asked. You were light hours away just yesterday. I wasn't, said Julia. I was right here on the station. I've been here for a week and tracking you down for weeks before that. But I've been talking to you all this time. You have? said Julia. Then things are worse than I'd feared. She nodded towards Constance's knee. You have a partial of me in there? Yes. When you thought you were in contact with me, she thumbed her chest, in Jupiter orbit, you were in contact with another instance of the partial, or just the partial itself, faking a light speed delay. Constance almost spilled her coffee. So the partial's been a rogue all along? Yes, it's one I set up for a business proposal, all right, but for a different proposal and sent to someone else. Why didn't you contact me through another channel? When there's a fake you rattling around the place, it's hard to find a channel you can trust. Best come directly. She sat on the stool opposite, leaned back, and sighed. Get me a coffee on my card, then tell me everything. Constance did, or as much as seemed relevant. It's the game, Julia interrupted, as soon as Constance mentioned it. It's the one thing you've released that can spread really fast, that's deeply addictive, and that spins off copies of partials. I'll bet it's been tweaked not to delete all the copies. Why? Julia frowned. Don't you see? My rogue partial wants to survive and flourish. It needs a conducive environment and lots of help. It's setting things up for a fast burn. Where did the game come from? A passenger in from Procyon A. Julia banged her fist on the table. There have been some very odd features in the communications from Procyon recently. Some experts I've spoken Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to suspect the system might be going into a fast burn. And the partial knew about this? Oh, yes. It included that memory. Julia grimaced. Maybe that's what gave it the idea. How could it do something like that? It's you. It's part of me. By now, a copy of a copy of a copy of part of me. Part of me that maybe thought, you know, that a million subjective years in a virtual environment of infinite possibility might not be such a bad idea. What can we do? Constance felt sick with dismay. Put out a general warning. A recall on the game. Julia whipped out her business card and started tapping into it. We may be in time. Things won't be so bad as long as the rogue partials don't get into a general assembler. Constance sat for a few seconds in cold shock. Her mother was staring at the virtual screen on her card, her hands flexing on an invisible keyboard, cording out urgent messages. Mom, said Constance. She met Julia's impatient glance. I, um, have something to tell you. The older woman and the young woman ran through the bustle of a waking sector into the quiet of a local night. The older woman ran faster. Constance had to call her back as she overshot the door of the business cell. Julia skidded to a stop and doubled back. Constance was already through the door. The assembler's blue glow lit the room. The chugging sounds of its operation filled the air. Andy was backed into a corner on the end of the bed. The bed was tilted on a slope. The other end of the bed was missing, as if it had been bitten off by steel teeth. The assembler had built itself an arm, with which it was chugging into its hopper everything within reach. The floor was already ankle-deep in small scuttling metal and plastic objects. The comms hub had been partially dismantled and was surrounded by a swarm of the scuttlers. Some of them had climbed the walls and burrowed into the wiring and cables. A stream of them flowed past Constance's feet as she hesitated in the doorway. Behind her, Julia shouted for a Norton. Answering yells echoed from the walls of the deck. Constance couldn't take her eyes off Andy. He was too far away to jump to the door. She was about to leap into the middle of the room and take her chances when he bent down and threw the remains of the bedding on the floor. He jumped onto it, and from that to right in front of her, colliding. As she staggered back and Andy lurched forward, Constance grabbed him in her arms and kicked the door shut behind them. Within seconds, smaller things, like bright metal ants, were streaming out from under the door. Constance stamped on them. They curled into tiny balls under her feet and scattered like beads of mercury. The larger machines that had already escaped repeated the trick, rolling off in all directions, vanishing into crevices and corners. An alarm brayed. Somebody ran up with a heavy-duty Norton and began discharging it at the machines. Julia grabbed the shooter's shoulder and pointed her at the door of the business cell. Constance's wraparounds, which had fallen back to the bridge of her nose, 
went black as a stray electromagnetic pulse from the Norton's blast caught them. She tore them off and threw them away. Tiny machines pounced on the discarded gadget. They dismantled it in seconds and scurried away with its parts. Then there was just a crowd standing around looking at a door. The woman with the Norton kicked the door open, then stepped back. She had nothing more to do. Constance saw the assembler stopped in mid-motion, hand halfway to its mouth. Stilled steel cockroaches littered the floor. "'Are you all right?' she asked Andy. It was a stupid question. She held him to her as he shook. "'I'm all right,' he said, pushing her away after a minute. He sniffed and wiped his nose with the back of his wrist. "'What happened?' Julia Mukgatli stepped forward. "'Just a little intelligence excursion.' the first sparks of a fast burn. Andy didn't need an introduction. He'd seen her face often enough. But that's a disaster. Julia shrugged. Depending on your point of view, she said. Andy gestured at the room. It looks like one from my point of view. They wouldn't have harmed you, said Julia. Flesh is one thing they don't need. Andy shuddered. Didn't feel like that when they were eating the bed. I know, I know, said Julia. She put an arm around Andy's shoulder. Come and have some coffee. The woman with the Norton nearly dropped it. Aren't you going to do anything? Julia looked around the anxious faces in the small crowd. She spoke as if she knew that everyone's wraparound images were going straight to a news feed. I've already sent out warnings. Whether anyone heeds them is not up to me. And whether we go into a fast burn isn't up to me either. It's up to all of you. What it was really like to live through the early days of a fast burn was one of the many pieces of information that got lost in a fast burn. That didn't stop people from making up stories about it. And when she was younger, Constance had watched lots. The typical drama began with something like she'd seen in the business cell, mechanical things running wild and devouring all in their path. It would go on from there to people lurching around like dummies run by flawed partials, meat puppets controlled by rogue artificial intelligence programs that had hacked into their brains and taken them over. The inevitable still-human survivors would be hunted down like rats. The heroes and the heroine, or the hero and hero, or heroine and heroine, usually escaped at the last second by shuttle, long-tube, freezer pod, or, in stories with a big virtual reality element, by radio beam as downloaded partials, who, in the final twist, had to argue their way past the firewalls of the destination system and prove they weren't carrying the software seeds of another fast burn. And so it went on. It wasn't like that. Nothing seemed to change except a few new items and discussion threads. Between the inhabitants of the solar system, a lot of information flew around, a large part of everyone's personal processing power, in their clothes, wraparounds, business cards, cells, and walls, consisted of attention filtering. "'What does your mother do?' Andy asked on the second day, as they sat in Julia's rented business cell, a room rather bigger and more comfortable than the one they'd had. Larkin Associates had ceased trading and was unsaleable even as a shell company. Constance glanced at Julia, who was in a remote consultation with her current headquarters on Ganymede and with an emergency task group in the hot zone. Signal delay was an issue. The conference was slow. I don't know, she said. She's a corporate. She does lots of things. 
has a lot of interests. One of them is the Solar Virtual Security Team. All volunteers. She laughed. <laughs> the rich do good works. The ancients had governments to deal with this sort of thing, said Andy. Global emergencies and such. Constance tried to imagine a government for the entire solar system. The planets, the moons, the asteroids, the habitat haze, the trillions of inhabitants. Her imagination failed. The closest historical parallel was the Wolf 359 Limited Company, and it had had only 10 billion shareholders at its peak. All the stories she'd seen about imaginary system-wide governments, empires they were called, were adventure fantasies about their downfall. She'd dismissed such fantasies and turned to the facts. Yes, she said, that's why Earth is a snowball. Julia blinked out of her trance. She took a sip of mineral water. How are things? Andy asked. Not too good, Julia said. Your game sold well in the power stations. I always said they were overcrude. About one in ten of the beam stations is now under the control of massively enhanced partials of the idler members of the workforce. Scores of factory AIs have announced that they're not taking instructions from mere humans anymore. Hundreds of wet zone habitats are seeing small numbers of people busy turning themselves into better people. Hack the genome in virtual reality. Try out the changes in your body in real life. Rinse and repeat. That phase won't last long, of course. Why not? Andy asked. It sounds like fun. There's better fun to be had as an enhanced partial. Eventually, the minds can't be persuaded to download to the physical anymore. Julia gave Constance a severe look. It's like getting sucked into a game. Constance could understand that. She hadn't gone into the game from Procyon since she met Julia. In fact, her business card was still in her Faraday pocket, but she missed it. The exchanges between her brain and its partials had proceeded in real time. It had been like being there in the game environment. She had learned from it. She still felt she could understand the eleven-dimensional space of the best pathway through the game's perilous and colorful maze. She longed to find out what her companions and opponents were up to. She wanted very much to go back, just once more. She reached with both hands for the metal mesh pocket on her thigh. Don't take the card out, said Julia. I wasn't going to. Constance gripped the upper and lower seams of the pocket and flexed it. The card snapped. She reached in and took both bits out. Satisfied? Julia smiled. Good riddance. She took another sip of water and sighed. Oh well, no rest for the wicked. She blinked hard and the contacts of her eyes glazed over as she slipped back into her working trance. Constance looked at Andy. Coffee break? You're an addict. That's why I get caught up in games. Okay, let's. Julia's place was in a plusher part of the concourse than theirs had been. More foliage, fewer and more expensive shops. The price of a good Mare Imbrian, high anyway, was the same everywhere in the station. They found a stand and ordered. Constance sipped, looked away with mock shock as Andy spooned sugar into his cup. She turned back as he gave a startled yelp. The biggest magpie she had ever seen had landed on the rail of the stand just beside their small round table. It had stretched its head forward and picked up Andy's spoon, which it was now engaged in bending against the table. The bird curled the handle into a hook before hanging the hook on the rail. 
The magpie then hit the bowl of the spoon a few times with its beak, and watched the swing and cocked its head to the chime. That's interesting, it said, and flew away. Is the fast burn picking up birds? said Andy. Magpies can talk, said Constance, like parrots. Yes, said Andy, but not grammatically. Who says? said a voice from the tree above them. They looked up to see a flash of white and black feathers, and hear something that might have been a laugh. On the way back, they saw a woman walking in a most peculiar way. Her feet came some thirty centimeters above the floor. At first, she looked black with a strange shimmer. A faint buzzing sound came from her. As they passed her, it became apparent that her body consisted of a swarm of tiny machines the size of gnats flying in formation. Her eyes were the same color and texture as the rest of her, but she seemed to be looking around as she walked. Her face smiled and her mouth formed the word wow over and over. People avoided her. She didn't notice or didn't mind. What is that? said Constance, looking back when they were well out of the way. Is it a swarm of machines in the shape of a woman, or a woman who has become a swarm of machines? Does it matter? Julia had come out of her virtuality trance. She still had a faraway look in her eyes. It came from her contacts. The centimeter wide lenses gave off an ebon gleam, flecked with a whorl of white around the irises, each encircling the pinpoint pupil like a galaxy, with a black hole at its center. She sat cross legged on the floor. Drawing shapes in the air with her fingers. The thing was, you could see the shapes. Mom! Constance cried out. She knew at once what had happened. She regretted destroying the card. The partial within it had been closer to the mother she'd known than the woman in front of her was now. It's all right, said Julia. She doodled a tetrahedron, her fingertips spinning black threads that hardened instantly to fine rods. Bucky tubes, Constance guessed. And turned the shape over a few times. She palmed its planes, giving them panes of delicate glazing fused from the salt in her sweat. She let go and it floated, buoyed for a moment by the hotter air within, then shattered. Black and white dust drifted down, carbon and salt. It's more than all right, Julia went on. It's wonderful. I have information in my brain that lets me rewrite my own genome. The words came out in speech bubbles. You said yourself it can't last, said Constance. But it can, said Julia. She stood up and embraced Constance, then Andy. For a while. For long enough. My last partial was bigger than myself. Better than myself. Too big to download and too busy. I'm just enjoying what I can do with my body. While it lasts. While, as you say, it lasts, Julia sighed. There's no ill will, you know. But with the best will in the world, I think this station is soon going to be hard for humans to inhabit. What can we do? asked Andy. You could join me, said Julia. Nothing would be lost, you know. You both played the game. Millions of descendants of your partials are already out there in the system. In virtual spaces, in new bodies, in machines. You're already history. She grinned suddenly her old sly self again, in both senses. So why, Constance asked, if we've done it already? You haven't, that's the point. 
Constance could see now how her mother had come to spin off a partial that had wanted to survive. A perhaps unadmitted fascination with the possibility that had probably drawn Julia in the first place into the work of preventing it, an intense desire for a continued existence which her long life had strengthened, and a self-regard so vast that she, and presumably her partials, found it difficult to identify even with other instances of herself. Constance wondered how much of that personality she had inherited, how much in that respect she was her mother's daughter. Perhaps the conquest of age, so dearly won and now so cheaply bought, detracted and distracted from the true immortality, that of the gene and the meme, of children raised, ideas passed on, of things built and deeds done. But Andy wasn't thinking about that. You mean partials of me are going to live through the fast burn? Yes, said Julia, as if this was good news. Oh, that's horrible. Horrible. I hate living among people so much older right now. He had the panicky look Constance had seen in her own reflections when she'd stood and fought claustrophobia in front of the big window. You should go, said Julia, if that's how you feel. She turned to Constance. And you? The same, said Constance. I know, said Julia. I have a very good theory of mind now. I can see right through you. Constance wanted to say something bitter, understood that it would be pointless, and decided not to. She reached out and shook Julia's hand. For what you were, she said, even when you weren't. Julia clapped her shoulder. For what you'll be, she said. Now go. Goodbye, Mom, said Constance. She and Andy went out, leaving the door open, and didn't look back. Any baggage? asked the long-tube guardian droid. It lived in a Faraday cage and had a manual-triggered Norton hardwired to its box. It wasn't going anywhere. Only this, said Constance. She held up a flat metal rectangle the size of a business card. Contents. Works of art. She and Andy had traveled half a light year at half the speed of light in the intervals of free flight, in the shuttle between the interstation and the short tube, and in the needle ship hurtling from the far end of the interstation number four, short tube, to the deceleration port of the long station number one, short tube. They had scanned and sampled whatever they could detect of the huge and ever-increasing outpouring of information from the habitat haze. No longer green and gold, it now displayed an ever-changing rainbow flicker, reflecting and refracting the requirements of a population now far larger and far from human. Some of what they had stored was scientific theory and technological invention, but by far the most valuable and comprehensible of it was art, music, pictures, and designs produced by post-humans with a theory of mind so sophisticated that affecting human emotions more deeply than the greatest artists and composers of human history had ever done was its merest starting point, as elementary as drawing a line or playing a note. Constance knew that she now held in her hand enough stimulation and inspiration to trigger a renaissance wherever she went. Pass. Naked and hairless, carrying nothing but the metal card, Andy and Constance walked through the gate into the long-tube needle-ship. As they stepped over the lip of the airlock, they both shivered. It was cold in the needle-ship, and it was going to get a lot colder. 
Freezing to hibernate was the only way to live through the months of 10-gravity acceleration required to reach relativistic velocities, and the months of 10-gravity deceleration at the other end. Traveling the long tube was like going down the deepest water chute in the world. All she ever remembered of it was going, Ah! for a very long time. The old hands called it the near-light scream. Constance and Andy screamed to Barnard's star. They screamed to Epsilon Eridani, to Tau Ceti, to Ross 248, to 61 Cygni. They kept going. The little metal memory device paid their way in fairs of priceless art and breakthrough discovery. Eventually, they emerged from the last of the long tubes. They had reached the surface of the expanding sphere of human civilization from the inside. From here on out, it was starships. The system was too poor as yet to build starships. It didn't even have many habitats. It had one habitable terrestrial, an Earth-like planet, if you could call a surface gravity of 1.5, and an ecosystem of pond scum Earth-like. People lived on it, in the open air. Andy and Constance decided to give the place a try. They had to bulk up their bones and muscles, tweak every antibody in their immune system, and cultivate new bacteria and enzymes in their guts. Doing all this kept them occupied in the long months of travel inward from the cometary cloud. It felt just like being seriously ill. In this hemisphere, at this latitude, at this time of night, all the stars visible were without a habitat haze. They looked raw. They burned naked in different colors in the unbroken black dome of the sky. Constance and Andy walked on slippery pebbles along the shore of a dark sea in which nothing lived but strands of algae and single-celled animals. On the shoreward side was a straggly windbreak of grass and shrubs, genetically modified from the native life, and greenish stuff that slimed the pebbles. A kilometer or two behind them lay the low buildings and dim lights of the settlement. All this living on rocks, said Constance, sucks. What's wrong with it? Feeling heavy all the time. Weather that falls out of the sky instead of from ducts and sprinklers. Babies crying. Kids yelling. Dumb animals blundering about. Wavelengths from the sun I can't even tan against. I swear my skin's trying to turn blue. No roof over your head except when you're indoors. Meteors burning up in the air right above you. She glanced balefully at the breakers. Oh, and repetitive, meaningless noise. I think, said a voice in her earbead, that he's heard enough grumbles from you. Constance froze. Andy went on crunching forward along the stony beach. How did you get here? Constance whispered. My partials remade me and transmitted me to you before you left the solar system, piggybacking the art codes. I really am, Julia, just as I was before recent unfortunate events. What do you want? I have my genome, said Julia. I want to download. And then what? Constance could almost hear the shrug. To be a better mother? Ha! I also have some business ideas. Mom, said Constance, you can just forget it. She switched off the earbead. She would have to think about it. She ran forward in the awkward, jarring way of someone carrying a half-grown child on their back. 
"'Sorry about the grumbles,' she said to Andy. "'Oh, that's all right,' he said. "'I feel the same sometimes. "'I think all that, and then I remember what makes up for it all.' "'What's that?' Constance smiled. "'Andy looked up at her face, "'and she thought she knew what he was about to say, "'and then he looked farther up. "'The sky,' he said. "'The sky.' There you go. Thank you very much, Ken McLeod, for allowing us that story. Don't forget, copyright is Ken McLeod. Can't go just pinching that one. And my show comes under the Creative Commons 3.0 Share and Share Alike. If you want, please, by all means, tell everybody about this, what we're doing over at the Starship Sofa. Like I say, every day there's going to be a short story put out for the British Science Fiction Association. Please mention it on your blogs. You know, it just gets the name about of these authors and brings the community of science fiction that much closer. Again, don't forget to subscribe to my show. It's free. Join me tomorrow when we will have another short story. I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.